Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Great to see you again. It's been a few weeks. Uh, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus here on The Conscious Capitalists, and in a sense, we're relaunching now, uh, and we'll tell you a little more about that uh, towards the end of the podcast. Yes, and today, to relaunch, we've got a very special guest, Lynn Twist. And perhaps, Raj, you want to do the introduction here. Yeah, it's my great pleasure. I mean, Lynn is one of those people who comes into your life and changes it and has she's done for countless people on this planet. A truly unique soul. Uh, we will learn more about her backstory, of course, as we go along. But uh, Lynn was for many years a uh, uh, prolific fundraiser for the Hunger Project, uh, raised hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and then wrote a book called The Soul of Money, which is about changing our relationship to money, which for most people is very dysfunctional and almost compulsive. And uh, she sees money in a very different light, and we will uh, talk about that. And then uh, Lynn went on to found a very influential organization called the Pachamama Alliance uh, with her husband and with John Perkins. And we'll talk a lot about that. And I've personally been connected to that now, and I've experienced a journey with Lynn and the other founders. And that too is a life-changing journey, not only or, or an organization, not only for the people who uh, go on these journeys, but also for what they're trying to accomplish in the world, uh, which we will talk about a great deal. And I believe that Lynn has a new book coming out too. So we look forward to learning about that. Uh, Lynn is also on the board of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., uh, uh, among many, many, many other things that, uh, that uh, she has done. So we are very, very delighted to uh, welcome Lynn to our podcast today. Thank you, Raj, and thank you, Timothy. It's wonderful well, to be here. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And maybe begin with this notion of the soul of money and, and, and how you chose that title, the soul of money. Uh, well, uh, let's see. Well, I spent many, many years, as Raj said, um, fundraising and working as a philanthropist and a fundraiser and training, I know, in 53 countries, 50,000 fundraisers. Um, and in that work, um, I discovered how deeply uh, dysfunctional uh, most people's relationship with money is. I mean, really, whether they have piles of it or they're trying to make ends meet or they're somewhere in between, most of us have a very um, troubled relationship with money with lots of anxiety, lots of wounds, lots of shame in many cases, or embarrassment, humiliation, um, or um, overbearingness. And um, I began to really look under the rocks. What is this? Whether the person is from Bangladesh or from, you know, Wall Street or from Japan or from, you know, South America somewhere, people have this angst in their relationship with money. So I started really looking uh deeply at that. And as a fundraiser, you get to have very intimate conversations with people about money. 
Um, and so I began to see that um, money doesn't have a soul. I'm not saying it does, but we do. And we have moved money so far away from our soul that it's almost like in a different domain, a different realm. And we can bring our uh, soul, our spiritual life, our longing for a better world closer and closer to our relationship with money. And when we do that, that um, kind of angst and upset and uh, anxiety starts to wane and we start to have some peace and freedom in our relationship with money, whether we have lots of it or little of it. Little, little of it. So that's been a big part of my work for the last few decades and it's been quite a ride. So that's why it's called the soul of money. And I have a little institute called the soul of money Institute where we work with people of enormous wealth. Some of our billionaire families who have all kinds of problems inside of their families with money, money sometimes eases the pain, but it can also um, amplify dysfunction. Uh, you might say, so uh, we work with wealthy families. We work with uh, fundraisers. We work with philanthropists. We work with, just folks in their troubled and often dysfunctional relationship with money and hopefully transform that so that there's a little peace and freedom around that relationship. So that's why we call it the soul of money. So that's my explanation. <laughs> well, I love it because when I read the book, the thing that hit me was that in a sense, you're talking about money as a means to something else rather than money becoming an end in and of itself. And um, and I think that changes everything when, when you think that way, because so many people think that money is an end, you know. <laughs> so say a little bit, how did you get to that point of view of thinking of money as a means to something else? Well, we call it a currency, and it is. It's a current. It flows through every life. It, um, it moves around the planet. It gets kind of stuck in some places and uh, not so... Uh, full on in other places, but it, 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 the real job of money, it's like water. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't belong to any of us uh, and it belongs to all of us. And our job, I think, is to continue to let it flow. And what, for those of us who are conscious, have it flow towards the highest good. So, you know, just like water, um, when it's flowing, uh, it can purify, it can cleanse, it can make things grow. But when it's hoarded and held and stuck, just like water, it gets stagnant and can actually make you a little bit sick. You can't see the forest for the trees any longer. So um, I, I love the idea of moving money. And so as a fundraiser, and I love fundraising, for me, it's a sacred profession. Uh, I consider it the, the courage to facilitate the reallocation of the world's financial resources away from fear, away from weapons, away from overconsumption, away from destruction to facilitate the reallocation of the world's financial resources away from fear towards what we love, the health and well-being of our children, the health and well-being of our communities, the health and well-being of our environment, the health and well-being of all children of all species for all time. So as a fundraiser, I feel, and as a philanthropist, I feel that my job, at least this lifetime, is to facilitate the reallocation of financial resources away from what we fear and towards what we love. It's a wonderful way to look at money and right now, you know, with the crisis we're facing right now, we're using money in a way that is a powerful statement. You know, money can say a lot of good things. It can say a lot of dark things, but it has uh, it has the power that we give it. It has no power. We give it power. So when we give it soul, when we give it power, when we use it for the highest good, money flows in the direction it's meant to flow. So that's kind of 
the idea. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. I think this is it's such a universal thing that you've tapped into there, you know, because all of us have associations with that. In my family of origin, money was always weaponized. You know, my grandfather and my father, they used it as a, uh, you know, as a way of, you know, if you're in, then you have access to the largesse. And if you're out, the first thing that they, they talk about is money. And so I think it really is, uh, is sorely needed. I was, I saw that movie, All the Money in the World, by about J. Paul Getty, who was the richest man in the oh, world yeah. at the time. And oh my God, what a miserable human being, right? And there was a lovely quote from a book called Shantaram, uh, which was written by an Australian, but actually based in India. And it was quoting some Indian spiritual leader, saying that money, you know, if you cannot respect the way you earn it, you know, then money has no real meaning. And if you cannot use it to make lives better uh, for people, then money has no real purpose. I think that's uh, such an, you know, I, I put the soul of money in my top five of books that have impacted me, along with the Frankel Man's Search for Meaning, Synchronicity by our dear friend Joseph Jaworski and, and your book and a couple of others, you know. So, so thank you for that uh, wonderful, wise and so readable book, you know, it became a model as I was working on a very personal book and you were part of that experience for me last year. I certainly saw that book as a as an example because I said the books that moved me so deeply were the ones where the author shared their own personal epiphanies and their growth and their journey. You know, so thank you for that. Um, you have lived nine lives, it feels like. I mean, and you've come across you're almost like Zelig, you know, or uh, Forrest Gump. You've come across every major figure. I think in the last fifty years has been a part of your life. You know, from Buckminster Fuller to Werner Earhart to Oprah Winfrey to Mother Teresa to I don't know. Those are just the ones that come to the top of my mind. And I wondered if you would share some of those recollections and people like Bucky, I know you talk about him as Bucky Fuller. I know he meant a lot and you learned a lot. And then also, I believe you were there in the early days of Est and Werner Earhart, if you could share some of those recollections. Yeah, well, I was very, very, very fortunate to um, uh, happen upon the Est training, the old Est training, which was very controversial in its day. But I was a young mother with three little kids and my husband was starting to make some serious money. And I was all about what I wore, whether I had designer clothes on or whether we were drinking the right kind of wine. And I didn't really care about all that stuff, but I got caught in the, you know, kind of yuppie world, I'll say. That's kind of what we called it then. Um, and, um, and then I took the S training really because a friend of mine she just looked so different. I went to a party and she just was glowing. And I asked her, what happened to you? Her name is Sandra. She said, well, I was in this weird thing, two weekends in the hotel ballroom with 250 people and one guy standing in front kind of yelling at us. And I don't know, I, I, everything's different. And so I said, well, I want to do that. <laughs> and so I took what was then called Est. And um, it really was, you know, everybody has their thing whether it's Buddhism or meditation or conscious capitalism or, you know, a revelation that was, it just woke me up. And um, right after that, I, um, I got involved and I, that's when I met Buckminster Fuller. And um, I, I can't tell you how, what an impact that had on me. I, I, I loved Buckminster Fuller. I didn't um, understand what he was talking about almost ever, but I loved him, you know, like uh, the Emerson quote, um, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. That's the way it was with me and Bucky. I just wanted to hear him speak. I wanted to be around him. And um, he was such a great human being, such a human being, you know, really human with this incredible intellect. And his mantra, his way of living was 
as an experiment. Could one little individual make a difference with their life that would impact all humanity? And, um, and when I heard him say that, when I heard him speak that at Marin County, California with 2000 people in an auditorium, and I was just one of the people there, he started talking about the, the times we were living in. This is 1976, so it's a long, long time ago. Wait, 76, 78, 1976, I think, yeah. <clears throat> and he started talking about the distinction of sufficiency, um, that um, there is enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. And I never even thought that thought. You know, we're kind of raised to believe in scarcity, that you have to get yours um, even at the expense of other people because there's not enough to go around. And um, he, he described a whole nother way of seeing the world. And it, it, it didn't just, I didn't really understand it, but it literally changed the molecules of my body or something. I was listening to this guy, this little, little short, little bald man in his eighties. Um, uh, I'm sitting in the auditorium. I started crying. I had a Kundalini experience. I, my hands started to sweat. I, I, I just, I just knew I'd heard something that was life-changing. And after that, I saw things differently with the S training and with hearing Bucky, Bucky speak. So I introduced Buckminster Fuller to Werner Earhart because I thought if these two people meet, something amazing is going to happen. And it did. It was the birth of the Hunger Project, the work to end world hunger, not just alleviate suffering, not just help the people that were in dire straits, but to actually eliminate end hunger on this planet. And once the Hunger Project was born out of their conversations, that became my life's work. Um, and I felt so, so, so grateful um, to both Warner and Bucky for their intellect, for their heart, for their relationship out of which the Hunger Project was born, where what seemed impossible was suddenly not only possible, but something that I committed my life to. And that was the beginning of I don't know what I call my committed life. That's the name of the new book, um, Living a Committed Life, um, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. And turning my life over to ending world hunger gave me freedom. I mean, it sounds like a trap, but no, the opposite was true. Once I knew that this is why I'm here, this is what I'm, I'm here to do, there was just this huge opening Oh, that, 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 that's actually great because, again, I think it plays into so many themes that, that you've written about and this idea of, at its core, of awakening people um, to what they can do with their money. Um, what I'm interested in is the first part of that statement, awakening people, because, you know, clearly, as, as we've often talked about in conscious capitalism, you know, uh, an organization can only grow as fast as the awareness or consciousness of some of its senior leaders. The more emotionally intelligent they are, the more spiritually intelligent they are, the broader the vision. The um, And in a sense, you're saying the same thing about people and the extent to which people can be awakened. They can start to think about money differently and also think about that bigger picture of what you're calling a committed life. So maybe delve a little bit into this idea of awakening people and, and, and your thoughts on um, you know, how do people wake up? <laughs> how, do we, how do we wake more people up <laughs> besides coffee in the morning? <laughs> well, sometimes you just get, you know, bonked on the head by, a, by an event like a cancer diagnosis or a, a, a harsh 
um, situation with your job or a, or a, a divorce. You know, sometimes it takes something really, uh, really harsh to wake us up. Doesn't need to be, but I'm just saying that does often serve to wake people up. I know so many people who've had a a death experience, a near death experience, or a death experience, and come back or have a cancer diagnosis that was dire, and suddenly they realized, you know, what my life is really about, you know. And um, but it doesn't necessarily take that. And I think we're living here. My my theory, my assertion. I'm not saying this is true or false. It's just how I see it. Is that if you're born and alive on the planet now, you have a job to do, you have a role to play. It's not a big role or a small role, it's your role. And one of the missions of life is to find that role and to play it with all your heart. And that's the, that's the source of satisfaction, fulfillment, full self-expression. That's the source of joy. That's the source of, of uh, really, um, you become the person you need to be when you realize what your life is really about. And then your life gets dedicated, it gets turned over. It's not about your petty concerns, about your worries, about whether or not you look good or whether you have the right friends or whether or not you make enough money. All of that goes in the background. It's not that it disappears completely because our society promotes all that stuff so much, but it's in the background and what's in the foreground is what you're committing your life to. And that is absolute total freedom and fulfillment. That's what I'm saying. And people are afraid of it, really, because they think dreaming too big and they might fail. No, dreaming big gives you the life you've dreamed of. Dreaming big shapes you into a greater human being. Dreaming big calls on your talents and treasures, treasures that are latent, that are in the, you know, in the dark for you, that, that, that are covered over by your concerns and worries about yourself, the petty thoughts that hold us back. So I'm all about, you know, inspiring people, catalyzing people, igniting people, creating ecosystems and environments where they find out who they really are, why they were born now. We've got plenty to do, you know. We've got every possible crisis available for people to turn around. So there's lots of awesome things to turn your life over to. You know, I met you at the Transformational Leadership Council uh, meeting in California somewhere, and I think that meeting was... The first time I think that they were engaging with conscious business and trying to learn about that. So I think you and I both spoke and there were some other people as well. And, and I think that may have been your first kind of uh, foray into this world of, of capitalism and business. And that's kind of how we connected. But then I want to come back to that, uh, your thoughts about that, because they're very rich. But I want to then go a little more into the Pachamama Alliance and the origins of that, which are fascinating. I know that uh, you had known John Perkins and you had gone on a trip down there to Ecuador and then and then you were sitting somewhere in Africa and you had a vision. Right? <laughs> if you could share uh, some of that and then what that you know, that calling was was undeniable, right? I mean, you were like hit over the head with it. So yeah, share how that came about. Yeah, that's an example of a hit over the head awakening thing. <laughs> Um, well, I was very, very dedicated to the, the work of the Hunger Project and managing operations in 53 countries. So I, I was totally maxed out and my children, you know, I was just like, I didn't have a free second. And then my friend, um, a friend by the name of Bob, who was a major contributor to, to, the, to the Hunger Project, invited me to go to Guatemala to train his development director for a project that he had there. And um, so I agreed, I took a leave. And John Perkins and I uh, were in Guatemala together to help our friend Bob with his project there. 
And while we were there, um, John is a trained shaman. He spent many years in the Ecuadorian Amazon uh, in the Peace Corps, and there's the whole story there, but he, he got trained as a shaman. So he could tell that the Mayan people we were working with in Guatemala were being directed kind of secretly by a shaman. So we went to see the shaman. And the shaman um, and John connected because they had that wonderful background. And John spoke a little Mayan and, and quite a, quite fluent in Spanish. So uh, uh, he organized uh, a, a session with this man named Roberto Pose. And we met him at midnight on the top of a mesa in Totonicapan, Guatemala, on an absolutely starry night, 12 of us actually. Um, and the shaman through John's translation, told all of us to lay down around a big fire that he had already built in anticipation of our arrival. So this is midnight in the middle of the night on this hill in Guatemala. And so 12 of us are around the fire with their feet towards the fire, if you can imagine kind of a wagon wheel. And the shaman through John tells us to journey. Well, I didn't know what journeying was from, from anything, but I thought, well, I think that means close your eyes and I was tired, so I did. And, um, and the shaman started chanting and John was drumming and the chanting in Mayan was this hypnotic, awesome, this guy had the most incredible voice and John is, is drumming. I'm trying to you know, take you to this amazing experience. And I'm got my eyes closed and I start to, you know, kind of go into some sort of a weird trance. I could feel my body kind of changing. And then I, I felt my right arm quiver and I had to extend it. And then I felt it sort of turn into some sort of a wing-like thing. And then my left arm started to quiver and it started turning into some sort of a wing-like thing. And I, I had a thing, some weird thing growing on my face. And I started to feel like I had to fly. I had to lift my body up. I just had to extend these huge wings. And I did, and I'm sort of in slow motion doing this experience. And I look down and I see all the people around the fire, including myself down there. And I hear the shaman's voice, this chanting, and I hear the drum and I still hear it very clearly. And I, I have this urge to fly up into the night sky towards the stars, which are just magnificent. And, um, and then at a certain point, in this kind of slow motion journey I was on, I, I started to realize it was dawning and I looked down and I was flying over a vast, 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 vast unending forest of green. It was spectacular and it went forever. And I looked down, I could see through the trees all the way through the canopy to the forest floor. And there were little critters running around down there and I, I had an amazing vision. And as I was flying in slow motion over this amazing, magical, glorious forest, these disembodied faces of men with orange geometric face paint on their faces like this and yellow, red and black feather crowns on their heads started floating up through the, the canopy, through the for, from the forest floor, through the trees, up to me, the bird, and started to speak or call to the bird in a kind of plaintive tone with a strange tongue, a language I didn't understand, but it was hypnotic and mesmerizing and, and really very, very beautiful, very touching. And then the faces would disappear and I would keep flying and then they would appear again. They would rise up from the forest and call to me, the bird, and then they would disappear. And this happened over and over for I don't know how long, but at a certain point I heard this bang, 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 loud, loud drumbeat. And I kind of woke up out of this trance 
I realized I had arms. I wasn't a bird. There was no beak on my face. I sat up. I opened my eyes, and um, the fire was down to embers. And I looked right across the circle to the shaman, and he was, you know, looking at all of us. And then he asked uh, through John each of us to share our journey, and everybody shared that they'd become an animal. And when I shared my story, the shaman gave me this kind of weird look. At least I think he did. And um, and then it went around to my friend John, who had the same vision I did while he was drumming. Um, and so the shaman just completed the ritual, dismissed everybody but John and I, sat us down and told us that was not a normal journey. You're being communicated to, you're being called, you're being reached out to by a, an indigenous tribe. You must go to them. So I thought that was super weird. I didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> I was just there for two weeks. I had to go back to Africa and do my work, ending world hunger. And I said to John, that's your work. You're a shaman. You go to the Amazon or wherever it is. And he said, I know who these people are. I know where they are. Um, it's the Achuar people. They're calling for first contact. They're a dream culture. This is how they communicate. They're dreaming us to them. We have to go. I said, I don't speak Spanish. I'm not even thinking about the Amazon rainforest. You go. I've got to go to Africa. And what Raj referred to. So I went on to Africa. I went to Accra, Ghana, where we were having a board meeting in, in Accra, Ghana, the capital of that country and I'm sitting in a board meeting of the Ghanaian Hunger Project. There's five men and three women, Ghanaian people, sitting around a table, the board of the Hunger Project in Ghana. I'm the only white person there. They have very, very blue-black skin in Ghana. Beautiful, beautiful people, the Ghanaian people. The men in the in the room, after you know, maybe an hour of our meeting, suddenly started having orange geometric face paint show up in their blue-black faces. No one said anything about this. And I thought, I'm hallucinating. I'm nuts. So I went in the ladies' room, which is what ladies do. You know, you just go in the ladies', ladies room. That's the that's always the refuge. And um, I pulled myself together and splashed water on my face, went back. And after 10 or 15 minutes, it happened again. And then I just, I started to cry. I Everybody said, what's wrong? I, I said, I, I, something's I'm crazy. I'm, I'm ill. I got to go home. So I, I got, you know, got the first plane back to, it took me to Frankfurt, then Frankfurt to London, then London to San Francisco. And the whole time, whether I had my eyes open or shut, these faces kept haunting me. So then, um, of course, when I got home, I was embarrassed to tell anybody. I thought it was crazy. But eventually John Perkins returned from the Amazon where he had been after our trip. And he said, yes, Lynn, the Achuar are waiting for us. We must go. So then, this is a long story, but this is the end of it. We go down to Ecuador, uh, go to Quito, travel down the Valley of Volcanoes over the eastern side of the Andes, take a small plane after the, the canyon of the Stasa River into the most remote place on Earth that I've ever been, um, and the most remote ecosystem on Earth, uh, rainforest on Earth, the sacred headwaters of the Amazon, and we land in a dirt landing space right next to a river and after the planes the little planes fly away and leave us there they come out of the forest with their orange geometric face paint their yellow red and black feather crowns the Achuar leaders and that began a huge adventure that continues to this day working with the indigenous people of the Amazon to preserve the Amazon rainforest the source of our climate system and the source of life and that's the origin of the Pachamama Alliance Pachamama means Mother Earth, 
and it's an alliance between the indigenous people of the Amazon con and conscious committed people in the modern world like you for the sustainability of life itself. And fast forward to 2018, because uh, Lynn had been talking about uh, this journey and you know it just seemed too out there. And I said, oh my God, I can't imagine myself in the jungle for 10 days. But then 2018, I interviewed you for the healing organization to get your, your thoughts about that. And I remember the very next day you called me and you said, Raj, you basically ordered me to go on the trip. <laughs> you I described did. it. You said, Raj, you need to be on this trip. We're going in August. You know, you're going to learn more in 10 days about healing than you could in years of research. And I think you said you, you had a dream. That's why you called me that you said, uh, you know, I got this message in a dream that you need to come on this. And, you know, I had a book deadline in October and, and you were, I think the third or fourth person among my friends like Dilima and others who basically told me you need to slow down and work on your own healing and delay the book. So I delayed the book until February and I came on that trip. And of course it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and I had some life-changing epiphanies as part of that, uh, including the vision when we had that ayahuasca ceremony, uh, where I was given the uh, the acronym list that this is what the world needs to heal. That is love, innocence, simplicity, and truth, right? And that we've gotten far away from this. We operate from fear and hatred, and we've complicated everything, and we are corrupt, you know, and... Uh, you know, and, and we have no uh, commitment to the truth, you know, so rejecting lies, rejecting corruption, rejecting all the other things. I think that, so that that really became a deep, deep uh, message, I think, that came through me and really inspired me to write this other book that uh, that I've been working on. So thank you for that life-changing experience. And we were talking about awakening earlier. I know that one of the early exposures I had to your work was through the symposium, which is called Awakening, Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream. I just love that. It's a beautifully produced, uh, very, very impactful, and I'm sure life-changing for many uh, program. There's a video, and then there's some facilitation that goes along with that. We hosted one of those at Bentley. And so, so yeah, the, the scope and the impact of your work has been extraordinary. So, again, we're going to keep thanking you for all that you've done. Oh, thank you, Raj. You know? Thank you. Wow. And, and one of the other things I remember, I probably interviewed you for my last several books because we talked to you when we were writing Shakti Leadership as well and about the masculine feminine right and uh, and you use the phrase sophia's century and we are now living in the century when women finally rise to where they're supposed to be so if you could talk a little bit about that do you really do see this as a turning point uh in human evolution the rise of the feminine uh well yeah i i really um once again this is an assertion uh, not the truth or, or not the truth just how i see it but there's many, many prophecies about this century. And to just put it in the largest possible context, which I learned from Buckminster Fuller, um, this is the first century in the third millennium. If you think of it that way, we're beginning something very powerful. And I know time is arbitrary, but but we, we're really wedded to time. So um, as we look at this first century in the third millennium, when we're 21, 22 years into it, it seems to me anyway that this is the Sophia century, the century when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with man and the world will come into balance. And also where divine feminine wisdom in men and women will guide us uh, uh, to you know, relax the patriarchy uh, and, and really allow the, um, let's say the heart of humanity as well as the mind of humanity to have equal power, equal uh, clout, you might say, in, in addressing the, the great challenges that we have. 
And so um, I, I always like to tell this other prophecy um, that, that has me turn into a bird again, but the Baha'i people um, and the Cherokee people have a, a prophecy called the bird of humanity. And the first century of the third millennium is when this prophecy they say comes true. And they say that the bird of humanity has a, a male wing <laughs> and a female wing. And that in, um, in this century, uh, the male wing will have become so developed uh, overdeveloped and muscular that it will start to become violent to keep the bird of humanity afloat because the female wing has never been fully extended, fully expressed in all of us and, and folded in. But in this century, um, the female wing, the feminine in all of us will fully extend. The male wing will relax. And instead of flying in circles, as we've been flying for hundreds of years, the bird of humanity will finally soar. And I love that image. I love that prophecy. I think that's happening. I can feel it happening in myself. Um, uh, it's not just about women, but it's about, you know, the overbearing patriarchal way that we've been uh, dominating the world, like Rihanna Eisler calls it, the chalice in the, in the chalice and the blade, the dominator model to the partnership model. You can feel it happening. You can feel it happening with Ukraine. I mean, you know, you can see the the uh, the masculine, the patriarchy, the dominating, the overbearing energy that doesn't just come from one guy or one country, but it's in the world. And you can see the rise of the feminine as we respond to this, the unification of the world, the the heart. The, how touched we are, inspired by, by the Ukrainian people, how we feel our humanity being touched. I mean, I can, I think if this is a moment where we're, where we're having this podcast where you can really see, you might call it the feminine, I don't know, you, you don't want to name it that if it's offensive to people, but something's happening that you can feel. It's feeling, not just brain power, not just muscle, not just domination, uh, what's happening now in the world, you can you can feel it. The, the heart is open. It's breaking open. So that's that's what I call the Sophia century. And I, I feel that I'm doing a lot of work with women and men um, to to realize that women, we really need to we really need to step up now. We need to take our rightful role. It's it's not just that men need to let us. We need to do that. We, we need to all of us take an evolutionary leap. Um, and so I think it's a really, really brilliant, important, critical time. Well, that sets up the, the next thing, which is your book. So your, your book is about living a committed life. And in a way, it, it's about sending a message that you just were talking about. You know, this is an opportunity and a time in our time-space continuum that we're in here on this planet um, to make a difference. And... So say a little bit more about what moved you now to write this particular book. Uh, well, that that's a, another story. I, I have a friend, Jack Canfield, who is a really wonderful man. It's he, he, it was his event that that Raj and I met at. He's the chicken soup, chicken soup. He's guy. the chicken soup for the soul guy, and he's a storyteller, really good storyteller. I mean, he's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. And his series of books, Chicken Soup for the Soul, has sold. A half a billion copies. That's a B, you know, 500,000, 500 million. So he knows what he's talking about. And he loves my stories. And so he, he said to me one day, I want you to come to my house in Santa Barbara. I'm going to get 20 people in a room. 
We're going to set up a video and recording thing. And I'm just going to interview you and you tell story after story after story. Your story about Mother Teresa, your story about the Dalai Lama, your story about the women in Ethiopia, your story about the indigenous people of the Amazon, your story, you know, I got a lot of stories. And so um, I, I did that. And he, um, it was two days and Jack is so generous. He set it all up and there were meals and he had wonderful people in the room. And so we had 163, no, let's see, I can 167 stories in the story bank. And he sat there for kind of years. He, 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 you know, he said, now you take it and make it into a book. Well, I, I'm not really a writer. I'm a talker. You know, I can't, writing is like, I can't, it scares me. So I, um, I'm not like you, Raj, I can't sit down and write. So I, it, nothing happened. And then my friend, Mary Earl Chase, I just got to acknowledge her. She said to me, I'll write it with you. I'll your, be your collaborative writer. I'll get it out of you. You give me all the stories. I'm going to sit with you a couple hours a week. We'll, we'll start getting this thing into a book. And so thank God for her. It's now a book and it's a book of stories, not just about me and some of them are my stories, but also about my friend Van Jones, about Jane Goodall, about, you know, about Rev D, about these amazing, amazing people that I've met in my life. Some of them very, very visible, some of them invisible. Uh, Narcisa Macienza, who's an indigenous woman in the Amazon, uh, that I see have chosen a committed life. That is that they're, they've let their own identity move in the background and who they are is what they stand for. That's who they really are. They're, they are the stand they've taken. They're Gandhis. They're, they're Martin Luther Kings. They're, you know, they're, they're Jane Goodalls. They're, they're people that are, that, that you say their name and you just know their, their impeccable integrity and you admire them because they're not about themselves anymore. And so I write about them. I write about some of the experiences I've had in a way that hopefully inspires and catalyzes people to see that not only are these people normal, ordinary people, who became extraordinary by taking a stand. They weren't born extraordinary, they were born ordinary. What makes them extraordinary is taking a stand. You know, Raj, you're a perfect example of that. So um, that that's available to everybody, but not just available, it's imperative now for a lot of us, it, it won't be everybody, to step up big time. Uh, that's what the world wants of us, that's what wants to happen. And um, if, if enough of us, you know, just like the caterpillar butterfly metaphor, uh, the enough imaginal sales cluster, will turn our overconsumptive little brown fat caterpillar of a culture into a, a, a spectacular, unpredictable butterfly. And I actually think that's possible. At least I'm living my life with that possibility. So the book is about the distinctions that come to you when you live a committed life. For example, the, the distinction between change and transformation, which I think are completely distinct. Um, and I can talk about that, but you know, the change is change, 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 left, right, here, there, up, down. It's just change. Transformation is completely different. And that's what we're looking for now. That's what we want. And that's what we can foment, foster, create, uh, and express. So it's, it's about that. <laughs> oh, I love it. And, and uh, I'm thinking specifically, I mean, Raj and I have millennial children. And, you know, I know my children are now about to be out in the world doing different things. Um, what's your advice to the 
to the people in their 20s and 30s now who are, you know, they, they're going to inherit this world that we've left for them. Uh, how do they find a committed life? What is your advice to them? Um, well, let's see. I don't know if I have any advice for them. I can share my own journey. I can um, hopefully inspire them to consider the big possibilities that are in front of us now. But I will say, you give me the opportunity to share something that Bucky said to me that was super cool. Um, Bucky said to us when he had dinner at our house and our kids were kind of little and my daughter was eight uh, and we were having dinner in the kitchen. That's what Bucky liked. He, he wanted to have dinner with the kids. And my daughter, her name is Summer, she said a, a very cool, profound kind of kid thing. You know, when kids are little, they say wonderful things sometimes that are innocent and so moving. And Bucky turned to my husband, Bill, and I, and he said, never forget that your children are your elders in universe time. They've come into a more complete, more evolved universe than you can ever understand except through their eyes. And that moment that Buckminster Fuller said that to me changed my whole way of parenting, my whole way of teaching, my whole understanding of my role with younger people younger than I am. Um, I'm, you know, I'm in my 70s now, so I'm considered, you know, someone who you go to for wisdom. Well, I do have wisdom. I got a lot of experience. I've been around the block a million times. However, I see in these young people something that I so deep respect and admire. And in my not advice to them, but being with them, I mirror back to them in every way I can how extraordinarily great they are how competent they are, how comfortable in this world they are, even if they're scared to death of it, how awake they are. That's my experience of the millennials, your children, Raj's children, and in my case, my grandchildren. They are, they, they see what's going on. It's not cloudy for them. And, you know, not every single one of them, but the people that I have the good fortune to mentor and coach are already so awake and then now, given that are awake and given the huge challenges that they face and the capacity that technology gives them to uh, go in many different directions, um, what they have in their fingertips with their, with their iPhone, you know, a click here, a click there, they have entire history of the world. Uh, what they can accomplish is just unfathomable, not something that I can even advise them on but just to mirror back to them the power, the possibility, the beauty, the awesomeness of who they are. So that's my answer. I love it, love it, thank you. <laughs> so many nuggets, nuggets of just pure wisdom. Uh, Lynn, I wanted to, uh, <clears throat> as we near the end of this, uh, bring the conversation to business and capitalism and your change of heart and mind to some degree. I think, I think you've said that you used to view business and capitalism is kind of the enemy. They're the ones out there destroying and the environment and creating the inequality and, you know, doing all the other things. And I think of late, you've come to start to see that as, as an essential in this journey of transformation. Uh, and you've agreed to our invitation to join the Conscious Capitalism Board to help guide that change even further. So if you could talk about your evolving thoughts about uh, business and capitalism and where you think we are and where we need to go. Well, um, I don't know that I ever saw a business as the enemy exactly or bad and wrong, but I did 
um, as a as a what I call myself a proactivist rather than an act activist. I just like to put it that way because I'm an activist for, not against. So I do everything I can not be against um, and before or be standing in the soil for knowing that there's obstacles in the way and I, I'm, I'm willing to address them and dismantle them, but I, I, I don't want to be against. I'm a, you've heard me say, I, I think we need to hospice the death of the old structures and systems that no longer serve us, not kill them, not attack them, but hospice their natural death. They're unsustainable. They are dying while we midwife the birth of the new structures and systems that will serve us. And that's those hospicing and midwifing are acts of love and respect and, and give whatever's happening dignity. And I feel that way. Hopefully I've always been that way about business, but now I see, and really you helped me with this so much, Raj, when, when we first met that I can be, I, I have the opportunity given my work in the nonprofit or the, I, I call it the social profit segment, the sector to defang business for the activist community and have uh, the activists see that we can't get our job done without business. What, what are we thinking there? That's where the muscle, that's where the, the capacity to move, that's where the financial strength, that's where the, uh, the real uh, commitment to excellence live, not, not in governments, uh, unfortunately, so much uh, as in business where people really, really excel. And to um, marry the activist community and the business community, the private sector and the public sector, the, to, to, we all have to work together. So it's been my absolute privilege to get engaged with the business community. And, um, and I feel that the work that conscious capitalism does, that, uh, that you do, Rob, you too, Timothy, is at, I, I can't think of anything more important right now because the, the business is more powerful than government. And we all know that now. Um, it's, it, you know, government's powerful, yes, but the government is, is, is paralyzed by the, by the fact that it's been overtaken by money. You know, it's not we the people, it's we the money now. So and in order to get reelected, the gov government can't really get its job done because of this kind of crazy cycle. But business isn't beholden to that. Business is really, really about, can be about leading the world. And uh, the, the biggest institution on earth um, is responsible, yes, for some of the things that we, we're facing, of course, we all are, but has the capacity to turn it around. And right now I'm working with an amazing, amazing project. I, I can't really talk about it too much, but the indigenous peoples of the Amazon, the Amazon rainforest, the largest ecosystem on earth, bigger than the United States, the source of our climate system and, um, and preserving that ecosystem before it collapses. If it collapses, it's curtains for all of us and it's very near collapse. And governments can't tackle it. They just, they're paralyzed. Even the governments that, the nine governments that house the Amazon. But the private sector is now really stepping in and stepping up. And we're working on how the private sector can actually stay true to itself while the indigenous people stay true to themselves. Don't, don't monetize the sacred, they say. Don't commodify nature. And then the, the private sector is trying to, you know, stay true to its, its capitalist um, mantras. Putting these two together, indigenous people and the big uh, capital structures on earth to save the Amazon. We're, I'm working on that right now. And it is just so, so inspiring <laughs> to create new markets that don't commodify nature, that don't 
monetize the sacred that the indigenous people can be okay with because they are the keepers of our natural world. They they know what to do. We don't. We extract, exploit it. Not we, but you know what I mean. Um, and to put these two constituencies together that have uh, the opportunity to work together now is I'm very, very engaged in that. And I, it's all because of you, Raj Sasodia, that we're at this place with um, with the sacred headwaters of the Amazon. So yes, I'm all about all of us coming together, all of us working together, all of us understanding, you know, we, we, we need each other. <laughs> you know, business needs indigenous people. I got to tell you that they have they have problems, yes, but they have so much that business needs and business needs um, uh, indigenous people. Indigenous people need business. So that's that's the where I am right now. And I'm so excited to share that. <laughs> wow. Lynn, you've just covered an incredible breadth of very, very inspiring topics. And to paraphrase something I think you've written, our legacy is what we live not what we leave. And I think you are such a brilliant example of that for us today in everything you've covered. So thank you so much for joining us. Mm, thank you. It was fun. I loved it myself. <laughs> thank you, Lynn. We love you. We love you. We are grateful for you. And we look forward to everything you do with great anticipation and joy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you, everybody. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm all fired up myself. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to our listeners. Uh, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to our website, theconsciouscapitalist.com and leave Raj and I a message. And on whatever channel you're listening to this, please feel free to hit the subscription button. And we'd like to also thank our producers for today's show, tech sound. There are new producers and we really appreciate you, Max and Mars, for all the work that you're doing for us. And Tech Sounds is a part of Technological de Monterey, where I have the privilege now of being a professor as well as the chair of the new Conscious Enterprise Center, where we are trying to take these ideas and bring them with even more impact and depth and clarity into the world. So thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.